Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Atlanta Council. Um, I'm Barry Pavel. I'm the director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security here, and we're really thrilled to be uh, gathered here for this really exciting and um, I would even say innovative, um, but also important endeavor. It's probably a, a, quite an understatement to say that the men and women of the United States military sacrifice more than most to defend and carry out uh, American policies and, and promote and advance uh, U.S. interests. But certainly as such, they have earned a special voice in the discussions uh, here in Washington and elsewhere where policies are shaped and their insights from the front line certainly can play a key role in forming these discussions in Washington, D.C. With support from the Bob Woodruff Foundation, the Council has launched the Take Point Initiative in 2014 to engage veterans under the age of 35 in the foreign policy discourse with the objective of fostering a new generation of veteran leaders in the national security and foreign policy realms. Through Take Point, the Council identifies rising veteran leaders and positions them to succeed as non, helps position them to succeed, I should say, uh, as nonprofit and thought leaders through participation in an intensive 10-day fellowship. Each fellow enters the program with a proposal for a project that aims to influence the foreign policy discourse, and then at the end of the program, we award grant funding to individual fellows to support their work, and that's where you come in today. This year's program began on October 13th, and it's concluding today at this event, through which we will award $17,500 to one fellow to pursue a policy-focused project based on your votes here today. Uh, the fellows presenting today are all veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Their projects tackle key aspects of the foreign policy debate and include a novel addressing the civil-military divide in America, a documentary mini-series dealing with the intersection of veteran education, uh, education for a new generation of military officers, the resettlement of Iraqi refugees, and a research monograph analyzing the future of unconventional warfare, something we spend quite a bit of time here uh, on at the Atlantic Council. They will join a long line of veterans and military leaders at the Council, a number of whom are here today. We certainly would not be the institution we are today in any shape or form. Uh, and probably would not even exist without the leadership of several generations of veterans, from those who founded the Council to those such as General Scowcroft, uh, who has a role, as you might expect, in the Scowcroft Center, General uh, James Jones, the former National Security Advisor, who is the chair of the Brent Scowcroft Center and plays many other roles, and Secretary uh, Chuck Hagel, who was the um, chairman of the Atlantic Council and then uh, since he's uh, left his position as Secretary of Defense, is now a distinguished uh, fellow again uh, working with the Atlantic Council. And they have helped charge us with a new mission in recent years. So we're very honored and excited to now work with the next generation of veteran leaders and learn from them as we try to continue to advance our mission of trying to make sure that Washington's policies, activities, operations, and strategies match with the world that is out there and changing very quickly, and our veterans can really give us great insights into what's really happening in those regions instead of just uh, only relying, instead of us only relying on opinions from the, the hallowed halls of Washington buildings. Uh, so your role this morning is to listen to the projects and stories of the three fellows who will present very shortly and help us determine which project to support with 17,500 in seed funding. Your discussion will be moderated by Dan Chu, his, who is the, dep the Deputy Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center, and he is formerly Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy uh, in the Pentagon, in charge, obviously, of developing strategy and guidance. 
Before turning to Dan, though, and the fellows to begin this morning's presentations, it's my uh, real pleasure and honor to introduce one such senior veteran and foreign policy leader who has played a critical role as a member of the Atlantic Council Board, shaping and supporting our work, and I really uh, learned from um, working with him uh, when we were both in government. Mr. Stephen Kappas is currently a partner and chief operating officer of Torch Hill Investment Partners here in Washington, D.C. Prior to this role, he's, he had a distinguished 30-year career at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he retired as the deputy director. And during his time there, he was directly involved in the leadership and management of all elements of the agency under two different directors and two presidential administrations. This includes leading the CIA's globally deployed personnel and directing the agency's global espionage operations, relationships with foreign intelligence partners and, and the National Security Council mandated covert action operations. Mr. Kappas led in Washington and in Libya the U.S. government operation that contributed to the Libyan government uh, renou renouncing their weapons of mass destruction, I believe it was in 2004 or so. During his career, he, he also led the agency's operations and technical programs against counterintelligence threats around the world, something that's of high interest, unfortunately, uh, uh, today with the renewed challenges from Russia and others. Uh, his efforts included operations in South Asia and in the Middle East, and the operational element focused on Iran. His awards include the Presidential National Security Medal, the National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal, the CIA Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, two Distinguished Intelligence Medals, three Director's Medals, and the Donovan Award for Operational Excellence. Uh, Mr. Kappas's distinguished career in national security began, however, with his service in the U.S. military. Prior to the CIA, he served five years of active duty in the U.S. Marine Corps and ended his career as a captain. And it's for this reason, uh, but it's not the only reason, that we have primarily asked Mr. Kappas to join us today to provide broader context for the work uh, our fellows are pursuing and for Take Point's mission to inject the voices of a new uh, and very current generation of veteran leaders into foreign policy. Uh, Mr. Kappas will share his thoughts on veteran leadership in national security and foreign policy. And so with that, I would love to welcome to the stage uh, Mr. Steve Kappas. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Barry, for that very generous introduction. I didn't realize I did some of those things. Uh, but good morning to all of you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure for me to be here with you this morning, and I'm quite flattered to be asked to participate with you. I would like to, first of all, specifically compliment all the veterans. You've gone in harm's way. You've all served with honor and you have given freely to your fellow countrymen. Now, that is a noteworthy accomplishment regardless of this decade and regardless of the century. So my compliments to you. Now, while we should not linger on it, I would guess some of you also agree with Mr. Churchill when he said, there's nothing quite so exhilarating as being shot at without result. So I also compliment you on your survival in some cases. Now, I can already hear some of you thinking, oh my God, another man in a suit. Hope he doesn't go on forever. Please, not to worry. I subscribe to the view of the Tolstoy character Haji Murat when he said, ropes are supposed to be long, speech is short. So please, not to worry, I can see the frowns on some of your faces already. Now you're all here veterans because you're skilled men and women with an interest in the world around you. Your work while in service in foreign lands has given you experiences that most Americans simply do not have. Now I hope this experience has given each of you a permanent sense of how diverse the world is, how every culture is very different 
and that culture is extraordinarily important. Culture counts. So this is now part of your permanent fiber. Hopefully, as you look out over your changing and chaotic world, you're looking differently at the world than you did when you first broke the airspace when you landed in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever your first foreign location was. Now, also, if my assessment of you is correct, you clearly see the changes in America's place and our role in the world. Now, some of this change is inevitable and some of it's needed. And there is a great deal of truth to the old adage that the only constant in life is change. But there are portions of this change that are a great worry to all of us. These are great threats that have emerged in the post 9-11 environment. Quite frankly, something are like, some of them are like nothing we've ever seen before. There are violent acts of terrorism, both foreign and domestically. There's the continued brutality of misled nations and authoritarian governments that lead to the collapse of sovereign states. And now there's the cold, malevolent acts of the cyber thieves. Abuse of technology is not new, but the speed at which new technology is arriving is greater than ever, and therefore evil forces aligned against the United States have the opportunity to select tools for their use against us at a faster rate than ever before. There are strategic challenges like China, a reassertive Russia, and of course there's the continued dynamics of the world economy. And inside the economic questions, there are hidden threats. Unemployment of young people exceeding 30% in many emerging nations. Countries like Yemen, it exceeds 45, possibly 50% of young men between the ages of 20 and 25. All of these things require, and let me rephrase that, all of these things demand clear thinking, experienced people who care about the need for decision making and care about the defense of the republic. It demands people who are prepared to defend our people, to defend our values, but also understand that there are times when you must accept other people and their cultures and stop worrying about why they're not like us. Now, there are many people in classrooms at universities and think tanks that spend a lot of time studying these problems and recommending solutions. But let me emphasize this. These environments can never replicate the first-hand experience many of you have had that many of you have had with threatening environments and rapid change in the middle of crises that were also preludes to greater strategic change. Now, my comments to you are not a clarion call for return to government service or staying in government service. Governments, including ours, can be heartless and really clumsy. And heaven knows there are times when the federal bureaucracy would make a rock cry. You all have to make your own decision about whether you stay in government, whether you return to government. I leave that to you. But I am challenging you to remain in service to the people of our country. Regardless of the path you choose, private or public sectors, commercial or government markets, academic or operational, there are many more ways these days you can contribute and participate. In the ongoing discussions of threats to America, it is essential that the voices of a direct experience with threats need to be added to the voices of policymakers and scholars. I can recall many times when the President of the United States, senior policy officials, legislators, other men and women of influence would simply say, has anyone been there? Has anyone met any of these people? What do they want? What are they thinking? Extraordinarily important questions for a commander in chief as they start to make difficult and dangerous decisions. Now, men and women with direct experience in dealing with people of completely different cultural viewpoints are essential, are critical to helping the United States formulate policies and, and plans that we hope will work. As an obvious example, 
there is simply no substitute for having met Afghans when thinking about Afghanistan. It is also very important that both the good and the bad tactical and strategic lessons of Afghanistan and Iraq not be lost and that they not fall prey to the short historical perspectives of so many elected U.S. officials. You have a responsibility here. It's your responsibility to retain the truth about what happened as you saw it from the post you stood during the wars. This is very important and very essential. This contributes to a number of things. It contributes to making sure there is not a widening of any civilian and military gap in either academia or think tanks. It's important for more veterans to join the ranks of universities, thereby facilitating more engagement between the military institutions, colleges, universities across the nation, and of course impacting directly on the students. There's also another gap that must be closed. It's the gap between the public and the private sector. An effective partnership between the public and the private sector is essential to our national security. Now, I'm not talking just in the form of direct support to military operations or the building of equipment. I mean in support of large political and diplomatic efforts. It's the private sector of the world that is greatly admired by large portions of the world. We know how to innovate. We know how to create jobs. We know how to create wealth. We help people build their homes and educate their children. We know how to do that. It's not always easy, but we know how to do it better than anyone else on the planet at this moment. Now, these prospects, this type of economic creativity, which some of you are involved in right now, in conjunction with the national defense, can be just as powerful strategically in the long run as legions and legions and legions of U.S. forces. So I maintain, and there are people who dispute this, but I maintain that young men with jobs have less interest and less time to contemplate acts of terror. Now, many of you have already begun, and I offer you my compliments for that. You're writing, you're producing films, documentaries, you're spending a year in Nepal. My compliments to anyone who's been deployed to Sana'a. But my point is, there are colleges and universities across the country that will welcome your participation in some form of lecturing, team teaching, mentoring for students. Now, please, don't get hung up on this thing of elite universities. It's a phrase here in Washington that I hear too much. Your country, our country, is full of smart and talented people at all four points of the compass. And there's a lot of people who are interested in what they can do to contribute to the national defense. There's a lot of young people who need to hear from you because they need to know what actually happened, not what the newspapers told them happened, or not what their local politicians said. You have no understanding, quite frankly, of how serious your role is at this moment. Now, most things that need to be done, the most difficult part is staying the course. Now, there are going to be times where you're saying things and you're going to say to yourself, well, no one's listening to anything I say. Or another time where you're, you're t saying things, someone, no one agrees with anything I say. Yes, that will be true. And in our current political environment, many good, logical, and sensible arguments are drowned out by the cacophony of sound from both flanks. And I can assure you that delivering information to a president of the United States that he does not want to hear is not easy. But if you believe in what you're doing, if you are prepared, if you have developed the logic of your arguments, if you've been involved in similar problems or crises, so you have some sense of it, then you may carry the day, or at least plant the seed for further thought and discussion on issues of foreign policy, on issues of national defense, on issues that are most directly involved, you're involved with from your own businesses, your academic work. Now, a president is not the only example of this. Men and women of other types of influence in both the public and private sectors may also have entrenched views and seem impervious to facts and experience. Don't let that dissuade you. 
stay the course. You have something that is valuable to share. Stay the course. So folks, I hate to be the news to break to, to be the one to hate to break this news to you. But in the words of Pope Benedict XVI, you were not made for comfort, you were made for greatness. And if you're in this program and based on what I've read in your bios, that applies to you. It also appears to me that you've been given weapons and tools of what I call weapons and tools of the spirit. Those are courage, confidence, and I hope humility. These are yours to carry bravely, and I hope gratefully. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've spent many years in service in many places. I've seen many things, good and bad. I've dealt with liars, thieves, and cutthroats. And that was just in my own government. But seriously, I will tell you this, that through it all, I did believe then, I still believe today, that service for the American people is worthwhile. And I think now there are so many more avenues for service. There are more places to serve your fellow citizens. There are more places to make a difference. So I encourage you to hold on to your experiences, add new things to your kit bag of skills, and reach out. Reach out, reach out, and stay the course. If you'll allow me one more quote that I believe applies to you in your work, Archbishop Fulton Sheen said once, never despair. If you fail, start again, and always launch for deeper waters. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you the best of luck on these efforts. It's very important, and please, good luck, and God bless you all. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Steve. Really appreciate those uh, remarks, uh, and I hope that we all take them to heart. Uh, my name is Dan Chu. As uh, Barry said before, I'm going to be your moderator uh, for today. So first, I want to thank uh, Dan and Jonathan uh, for asking me to do this. I couldn't be more excited to attend and moderate this particular uh, event. Uh, I really intend to play more of a logistics role here. This event is really about you, uh, the presenters, and you, the audience. As you know, this is really intended uh, to be an interaction there as we go through this process, which I'm going to tell you about a little bit in just a minute. But I also want to tell you why I'm really enthusiastic about this particular effort uh, in particular. And I'm going to echo some of the things that Steve just said, but from a very different background, which hopefully you will all take as really robust encouragement to keep doing what you're doing and to keep staying involved uh, in these kinds of of efforts. So my work in the Pentagon and my work here at the Atlantic Council is really doing broad strategy and policy development uh, work. That means very long-term, very broad perspectives, uh, not as near-term, not as focused on uh, single issues. And I'll tell you, when I was in the Pentagon, my biggest frustration with that was really being able to talk to the people who had hands-on experience with what was going on out in the world. Uh, it is a little bit of a cliche, but it is, you know, these stereotypes come from somewhere that inside the Beltway we tend to talk to each other. Uh, if you think it's bad inside the Beltway, go sit inside the Pentagon for a little while. And getting out of the Pentagon is hard enough. Talking to anyone from outside the Pentagon is doubly, triply uh, hard. Not surprisingly, we've built kind of a really effective echo chamber around us when it comes to talking about how the world works, how the world perceives us, and what we should be doing uh, in the world. So when I was in the Pentagon, what I tried to do, uh, somewhat unsuccessfully, I, I am sad to say, is try to bring in new voices, try to get people who had experience out in the world from across 
backgrounds, across disciplines. Obviously, uh, our men and women in the military who had been deployed and actually out engaging in the operations we were overseeing uh, in the Pentagon. But also, the men and women who just go out in the world in general, in the business communities, in the education communities, arts, engineering, teaching. All of these folks have different perspectives, see different facets of what's going on in the world. And we need to bring those together if we're going to figure out how to manage what is clearly becoming a very complicated, multifaceted uh, context for us to deal in. This particular effort does a great job in doing that, and it does it beyond the Pentagon, beyond government service, and hopefully will affect uh, how people in the Pentagon and how the government uh, thinks about things. So I'm very, very glad to be here myself. This I'm very enthusiastic about this. Very, very glad all of you uh, are participating uh, in this. My congratulations to the three finalists uh, who I'm looking forward to hearing from and we all will be uh, hearing from. Now I'm going to say the things they told me to actually say, so give me a second uh, here. So first of all, as you know, we're all here today, It's a, and, and I've kind of alluded to this already. This is a cross-sectoral, multi-generational, uh, very diverse uh, group of foreign policy professionals, practitioners, experts, and senior leaders here in the audience uh, to assist us in determining how to allocate $17,500 of uh, seed funding that the Atlantic Council will be providing to one of the three projects you're going to be hearing about from our finalists uh, here today. Uh, so before we all begin, I'm told to ask you all to put on investor hats. So those of you in the audience will be thinking as investors. We need you to kind of come at it critically from that perspective and listen to these uh, presentations uh, with that uh, in mind. So I'll talk to you a little bit about how we're going to run through this. Some of you may have gotten that uh, great email that I think Dan put, put together that said the themes here are they pitch, you vote, we invest, right? So that's what we're going to do uh, today. So in a couple of minutes, when I uh, stop talking and get out of uh, your way, we'll begin the presentations from our uh, three finalists. They'll each have about seven or eight minutes uh, to present their project. Uh, and again, you all are the investors. We encourage you, take notes, start thinking about what questions you have for the projects, for the concepts, the goals, the plans, uh, or the fellows themselves about how they think about these things so that they can answer uh, you and tell you why uh, you, we should, we the council should invest uh, in their pitch. Uh, following the presentations, we will have time for that discussion. So I'll moderate 30, 40 minutes uh, of Q&A. Uh, we'll have all the uh, fellows up here uh, and we'll have a discussion about their various uh, presentations. And then the voting uh, happens. So we'll distribute, I think, some ballots uh, to the audience uh, and everybody will have a few minutes to vote uh, for the uh, pitch that they uh, think we should invest in. Uh, we'll take a little break while somebody in the back, I think that person in the back will count uh, all the votes, uh, and then we'll reassemble and see who uh, the winner of uh, this particular uh, round of uh, take point, uh, of the take point uh, initiative will be. Um, so now let me just talk to you a little bit about the, what you should be thinking about as you evaluate uh, these projects. So as you know, you heard Barry say before, we created TakePoint to provide uh, post 9-11 veterans a greater voice in the foreign policy discourse. And you've heard me and Steve talk about how important uh, we think that is. So we want you to vote for the project that you think have really the greatest chance to advance this mission, okay? We define foreign policy really broadly uh, for this exercise. It's not limited to just security defense issues, but really the broad sense of uh, international and I would even say kind of global affairs. 
As you evaluate each of these projects, consider which projects really leverage uh, the unique experience, leadership, uh, and the insights uh, that veterans have gained from their time serving uh, on the front lines, because that, of course, is the uh, underlying theme here. Um, and which projects inject their perspectives into the debate uh, and offer valuable insights into the key issues, some of which you heard Steve talk about uh, earlier. So those are the criteria that I want you all to be thinking about as uh, our fellows uh, do their presentation. Uh, be prepared to ask them some questions afterwards to help you make up your minds. Uh, and we'll now go to the uh, three presentations. We'll do them one at a time. Uh, and I'll start with uh, our first presenter, uh, Mr. Colin Wood. Uh, former Army combat medic, Colin is currently a Pathways intern and uh, researcher for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, at Engineer Research and Development Center, uh, where his research has focused on uh, social correlates uh, to political violence. Uh, Colin's project will focus on the future of unconventional warfare. Colin, please come on up. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as he said, my name is Colin Wood. I'm going to... Uh, Kind of run through this as, as a medic in Missoul, I, we really saw firsthand the costs that were associated in both blood and treasure of retaking the city. Um, and then subsequently, a few years later, ISIS is now back in control. Uh, as, as a country, we've been kind of ad hoc in terms of how we're really responding to this threat. Um, and so that's really what I'm trying to get to the, to the point of. Clickers. So in 2014, there was an interview with President Obama in which he basically spelled out the fact that we don't do unconventional warfare type things correctly. We don't know how to do arming and training of rebel groups. Um, quite frankly, it just doesn't work. Uh, as you can see with his quote, went straight to the CIA, straight to the source and said, hey, let's look at this. They basically told him, no, we, we don't do it right. In terms of policy making and decision making, that creates a, a number of different problems and really just the sheer and simple fact that what we're doing when saying, no, we don't do it right, is only looking at one very small aspect of what the problem actually is and what options we have available in order to kind of affect that problem, to affect change, and doing so through policy and good decision making. So. Again, clickers. Unconventional warfare really is, is what's at the heart of arming and training rebels. It's a, it's a core competency within special operations forces. Um, unlike hybrid warfare, things like that, what unconventional warfare is really looking at is destabilizing operations rather than stabilizing operations. So rather than uh, assisting a state in keeping its sovereignty, keeping uh, its people safe, really what we're doing is, as uh, the Joint Pub specifies, we're enabling resistance movements and insurgencies to coerce, uh, disrupt, and overthrow foreign governments and occupying powers. This is a, a very deep and lofty subject, particularly when we're thinking specifically in terms of how we are affecting change and how we're projecting power across the globe. And then to say we don't do it right, so we probably shouldn't do it, is very problematic. So. As you can see, the United States has had a long history in conducting unconventional warfare operations uh, since our very inception um, against the, the, the British. 
in the bottom, uh, as recent as the 1980s, obviously with the Soviet-Afghan war, we were arming and training Mujahideen. It was relatively successful in the short term. Uh, they were able to get the USSR out of their country, and it was a relative success. Again, short term. Long term, there were a lot of other issues that kind of uh, compounded problems. A lot of this stemming from the UW and, and uh, intelligence operations that were going on. On the top, we see the Syrian rebels um, that have recently been armed and trained by the United States, sent back into Syria, and subsequently have been lost. Uh, whether that's because they've been rolled up by ISIS and other organizations, not really sure, but we've spent a half a billion dollars on arming and training rebels with very little foresight into why we're arming and training, what's, what's the ultimate outcome, and subsequently, how are we really going to field this in a way that is effective, that we can really affect our national strategies, our national security, and our foreign policy interests in a way that really makes sense. Where we have failed and where we have succeeded, others are continuing to succeed in this space. Iranian support for Hezbollah, for the past 30 years, they have been extremely successful in terms of waging an unconventional warfare campaign against Israel. As you see on the bottom, um, Quds Force has been really very effective in arming and training. Uh, the top picture there is actually Qasim Soleimani. He's the Quds Force commander. This was taken earlier this month in western Syria. He's speaking to Iranian Quds Force commanders, Hezbollah fighters, and others uh, essentially in Syria right now that are also battling. Again, very effective in what they're doing. Russia and Ukraine, they have been arming and training rebels. This again has been very, very effective for the Ukrainian resistance movements there. Um, they have been successful in the past, they will continue to be successful. So why is this important? We have states that are acting on, on their own behalf to really affect change in, in places that we are also trying to get into and affect. Um, by not actually analyzing and not really thinking through, well, what can we do with unconventional warfare? It creates a lot of problems. So fiscal constraints and the shrinking force. We know that our budget, as far as the DOD intelligence agencies, it's going to shrink. We don't have the power to project as well as we did in the past, particularly in a conventional sense. This is going to require that we really start to rethink the way that we operate in this space, conducting warfare. There's a diverse array of threats. Again, proxy warfare is really big. It's not going to go away anytime soon. It's what's been going on uh, for really quite a few decades. So how do we now apply unconventional warfare? Do we want to? When is it appropriate to actually apply unconventional warfare? When is it appropriate to arm and train rebels? How do we do it? How do we vet? There's anecdotal evidence all over the place. There are case studies. But to date, there has not been, at least at the unclassified level, any type of systematic way of looking at this problem quantitatively and examining that. Also, what are the sheer risks just involved in doing this? Is it something that's palatable to the United States government and the US people? This is where my solution comes in. Um, I want to quantitatively analyze this. So take all the case studies, that's great. Let's put some numbers behind it and start to actually look statistically at, at what correlates with success versus failure. 
this will give us a better idea of how to start approaching this problem. Can we actually affect change in this space in a way that makes sense, that's palatable, that will really give us an advantage? Again, how do we learn, adapt, and rethink unconventional warfare? This is going to require uh, really a very large data gathering project um, on my part, which is the, the primary focus of what I'm proposing. This will go into a research monograph, um, at least in, in the, uh, the quantitative aspect of it. I'll take from that, develop a few policy issue briefs uh, that would be more uh, digestible, I guess, to the community that's uh, actually going to be taking this in for policymakers, and then make recommendations based on that. How can we really start to rethink the way that we are operating in this space? Can we use unconventional warfare in a very unconventional sense than traditionally how we're using it now? So with that, I will heed the floor. Great, thank you very much, Colin, for your presentation and your pitch on how to address some of the uh, toughest challenges and adversaries that we're seeing uh, today, certainly issues that we deal with at the Council here uh, every day. Our next presenter uh, is going to be Mr. Uh, Tom Berry, uh, former U.S. Army Infantry Officer and graduate of West Point. Tom is currently a Master's Candidate in Global Affairs at the Jackson Institute at Yale. Uh, university, and his project will focus on student veterans, ROTC, and Iraqi refugees in and around the New Haven, Connecticut uh, area, their interactions, and the important lessons we can learn uh, from these communities. Come on up, Tom. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Barry, uh, a veteran, and currently at one of the uh, elite institutions that uh, Deputy Director Kappas uh, hinted at. And what I noticed while being there, though I am a veteran and I am uniquely connected to what happens in the Middle East and the wars where I served, oftentimes there's a drift, if you will, into viewing these through the lenses of the headline on my newsfeed, the latest fall in Kunduz or Ramadi, or maybe a historical debate in one of my classes. And I think it does a bit of a disservice when you take in the fact, if you look a little bit deeper, Though there is a civil divide, there are actually living legacies in these wars, even in institutions like Yale and in the surrounding community. And I became aware of a group of veterans who happened to be working with refugees. And I think telling their story is really important, especially as not only are the, the Iraq and Afghan refugees that are being welcomed in through a State Department program at uh, New Haven, but increasingly there's going to be Syrian refugees. So uh, I prepared a uh, short video that shows why I think telling these stories are important. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit after the video on how I plan to bring those stories to life. So you figure this. <coughs> It is easy to overlook beauty at Yale's stunning and historical campus. Yet one place stands apart. It sits at the heart of Yale, along Grove Street in downtown New Haven, Connecticut. The War Memorial in Woolsey Hall is a crossroads where students, faculty, and locals pass by the legacies of war on their way to living their everyday lives. Inside that building, on curving white marble walls, are inscribed the names of every Yale graduate fallen in war since the time of the Revolution. It's a powerful testament to the history of service at Yale. 
Architect Maya Lin cited these marble walls as an inspiration for her Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. There are no names listed here from our present era of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. In some ways, this is a relief, a community-spared tragedy. In others, it's evidence that at Yale, like at other places in America, most people are removed from the wars and the legacies. Yet there are voices from many sides of those wars beneath the surface at Yale and the community beyond. Active military and veterans are on campus in increasingly large numbers. New Haven has welcomed over 500 Iraqi and Afghan refugees as part of a State Department resettlement program. And, looking to the future, the next generation of leaders are emerging at Yale's recently reconstituted ROTC program. The mission of the Tigris and Grove Street project is to bring these voices to life through stories of veterans, refugees, and future military leaders in the Yale community. These stories are essential because they raise important themes such as the sheer complexity of war and its effects on those who endure it. That, that they, uh, they, were, uh, uh, they were forced out of our house by uh, extremists. And those extremists threatened my family and wanted to kill my family, wanted, wanted to bomb my house. And uh, my family had to leave uh, my house. Another key theme is the common challenges of recovery for those who survive war. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, both, uh, you know, the refugee and, and the veteran uh, community have, uh, have something in common in that, um, the last thing that anybody needs is uh, not the last thing that anybody wants, because a lot of people will want this, but the last thing they need is sympathy and charity. They need empowerment. You know, they need somebody to, to challenge them and put them back on a, on a road map, something to occupy them. Finally, leaders who will face war in the future can benefit from understanding its living legacies. And then working with Maher and a group of Iraqi refugees this summer, I also got a local perspective on the Iraq war, which I think kind of changed a lot of my perceptions about the value and effectiveness of our operations there, just because it made me think of the human impact of our military operations in a way that I hadn't previously thought about it. Tigris and Grove Street Project will bring these themes to new audiences through a series of short documentaries, distributed online and through screening events in the Yale community. We will bridge in a small way the divide between those who have been to war and those who haven't, bringing benefit to both. Join us at the Tigris and Grove Street Project in telling stories at the intersection of war and the Ivy League. And uh, so now I want to talk a little bit about how we can bring just the idea of what you saw into reality with more professional, uh, short-length documentary style. So our team, I really wanted to build the team out of refugees who are interested in media and former interpreters who are interested in media and veterans. So we have Maher Mahmoud who studied film and photography for three years in Baghdad and Jordan before arriving in the U.S. with his family in New Haven uh, 16 months ago. He wants to tell stories that will empower his fellow refugees from Iraq who are struggling in the community, and he also wants to build his part-time wedding, photography, and videography business into a full-time venture. And we have Michael Finnegan. 
He is my comrade in the Connecticut National Guard. He serves full-time there. He's an Iraq and Afghan veteran who went to film school because he wanted to, he went to film school and he produces short-length social documentaries because he wants to tell stories of people in his community that he, would know he wouldn't interact with being a uniformed service member. His latest documentary is about a drug dealer in Bridgeport, New Connecticut, who mentors young men on a path to success. You can imagine that happening. But he'll be working with us in creating a more professional feel going forward. And my interest is being at a policy school um, and having worked on some social media products before and seeing how media can have a distinct way of influencing people, different from maybe even our forum here, I wanted to reach audiences, first and foremost, the Yale community. Because like I said, Yale's an elite institution, but the people in that community don't necessarily have that human contact. Um, and we want to bring it through a series of premieres, first in English with, you know, everybody in the community, Gateway Community College, Southern Connecticut, as well as people who just like film and are going to show up to a, uh, a thing. Um, and secondly, in Arabic and Dari language, because those communities, English language being the number one uh, hurdle for refugees who assimilate, they need to see these stories. And they need to see that veterans, oftentimes, that they saw through the lens of a up-armored Humvee are actually working in a different light. And that's what America is about. And that's where really these past two weeks have solidified my determination that there's a national policy discourse that matters. Um, Mike Breen, currently with the Truman National Security Project, Matt Zeller from the Leave No One Behind Project, have told me that Americans who sometimes have a nativist, anti-immigrant impulse need to see the veteran in the same frame as the former interpreter and the refugee. Not to mention that our desire to create a durable republic for our future depends in a lot, large part by veterans seeing other veterans who aren't just sitting on our somewhat awkward pedestal of being thanks for our service, but advocating for something that we believe in. And that is another important aspect that I think has national resonance. The series itself is going to consist of three um, short length documentaries between 10 and 15 minutes, um, because feature length is not just the way to go at this problem, in my opinion. The first one will be um, a refugee's first 24 hours of arrival in America, hopefully New Haven, um, and being received by a veteran caseworker, Andrew, who you saw in the video. Um, second, the common challenges of recovery. Uh, Andrew was trained as a sonar operator in the US Navy and was attached to an interrogation detail at Bagram Prison. So some of the struggles he has coming back to an environment that feels foreign now are similar to the struggles that a uh, refugee has in an entirely foreign environment. And finally, the future. Through the lens of Marine ROTC cadets who will be likely engaged in this region in the future, and also what we think our future refugee policy should be. Um, I hope to actually come down and interview some of the amazing leaders that the uh, Atlanta Council has connected me with who have even deeper expertise on this issue than I do and uh, open that up. And finally, something that I owe entirely to the Atlanta Council, um, when I participated in the Capitol Telling event, which puts veterans on stage to tell their stories, um, we are now going to work in conjunction with the Telling Project and the Yale School of Drama, hopefully, to put an event on where it's not just veterans telling their stories, but it's interpreters and refugees. You see the other side of conflict as well. And timeline on all this, we're looking at April will be our premiere date in English. And depending on, on what translators we can line up shortly thereafter in May, um, we're going to work with religious calendars and kind of local social leaders on that May timeline. Um, 
on what works best. And then the telling project is not yet defined in there, but we, we hope to do that as well to give a face-to-face -face element. And that's basically my project, and I'm really excited, and I hope to have your support in it. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Tom. Not only uh, some ideas on bringing new voices into the discussion, but how to actually involve them in the discussion, and then thinking really hard about how to disseminate uh, that discussion. <laughs> Our third presenter is uh, Mr. Daniel uh, Trusillo, a veteran of the US Army. Daniel served on an embedded military transition team in Iraq and is currently writing a novel based on his experience that address, uh, addresses the civil-military divide and the reality of uh, modern combat. So come on up here, Dan. He was alone. His back was racked with guilt. His heart ached. He did not know who he was. Living hurt him. Thank you for your service, they said. And then there was nothing. These are the opening lines of a work that I've been working on for years. And it's a work that I would like to use to address the civil military divide and to reach out to the community and start spurring a conversation that I think is absolutely critical. It has to take place across the United States about veteran reintegration, veteran suicide, and also Islam and the Iraqis that, or the Afghanis that we have worked with or been influenced by in Iraq and Afghanistan through our combat. When I got back from Iraq, I wasn't able to talk about my experience, like many veterans. The way I dealt with it was writing. It was a very cathartic process for me. I was able to write down my stories, my thoughts, my feelings, and it helped me to get it out, to deal with it. And over time, I got more comfortable with the material. I got comfortable sharing it with people. And I realized there was a lot of people, a lot of people, who really were interested in what I had to say. And they wanted to understand what we had been through. They wanted to know what we were feeling and thinking. Because they, they didn't want that statement, thank you for your service, to be empty. It was well-intentioned. They wanted to understand us. And so over time, I got more comfortable with the material. And in the last eight months, I've taken that material, and I've turned it into an 85,000-word manuscript. It's a manuscript of a book that I would like to have published so that I can share those stories. I call it Patriots. So I think a story is really about the characters. In order to reach a really broad audience, I need to have a captivating story, something that grabs people, so that when they pick up this book, they want to read it and they don't put it down. And the idea is that everyone will enjoy it and laugh along with the soldiers. Imagine being in their boots so that they feel the suffering, but also the good times. And they see why I'm still good friends with some of the Iraqis that I served with. That's really important. So why do I think my story is captivating? Well, it's probably captivating like most of the other veterans that I know. 
The difference is that I've had the opportunity to share it. One of the guys on my team, Dave, and uh, some of you are at the Telling Project. This is Dave. This is the guy that was, was hurt in the IED. In the last seven years since we got back from Iraq, he's been cycling through hospitals and overdosing on prescription medications. We also got my medic. This is Doc. He, at the ripe old age of 25, was medically retired from the military because he had been blown up so many times. And Doc now works for the Wounded Warrior Project. There are other stories as well, and this is why I think this is a captivating one that maybe a population that wouldn't normally read military literature would actually pick this book up and want to talk about. So the team that I was on was embedded with this Iraqi Infantry Battalion in Kallus, which is in Diyala Province, Iraq. We were embedded there because there was a massive attack on a street market. This is when sectarian violence was really escalating in Iraq in 2006. So the Mahdi militia, a Shia organization, went through a town and just started attacking Sunni shops. They killed eight, they burned down shops. The Iraqi army was right down the street and they didn't leave the base for a variety of reasons. Well, my team was embedded with these guys. We were told, you're gonna go live with them because this cannot happen again. So we moved out there and we actually had some of the best intel that was coming out of Diyala province. Some of you may have heard of Zarqawi. The intel that led to the targeting of Zarqawi came from my team. We got that intel because one of our interpreters was also working with the Mahdi militia. His name was Ghassan. Now Ghassan, he had been impacted by war for years. And he was a very complex character. One of the other people on my team was the recipient of a silver star. He was our intelligence NCO, our intelligence sergeant. So this, this guy, in his first deployment, had saved a patrol, basically single-handedly, and he had been awarded the third highest award that you can get for valor in the United States, the Silver Star. Well, in that attack, he actually also injured his back. And so when he got back to the United States, he was prescribed muscle relaxers in order to deal with the spasms. By the time we deployed to Iraq in November 2005, he had become addicted to these muscle relaxers. When we moved out to Kallus, we had hundreds of weapons, AK-47s, RPGs, thousands of rounds of ammunition, Glock pistols, because every time we would go on a raid, we would confiscate these weapons. That's what we did. Well, this intelligence sergeant was fueling his addiction by selling those weapons through Ghassan, our interpreter, to the people who were then using those weapons on us. Personally, I think this is a story that's gripping. I think it's one that needs to be told because I don't think that either Ghassan or this intelligence sergeant are bad people. I think that they're, they're part of this whole environment. And I think that there's a very complex thing that we need to talk about. How do you reintegrate this intelligence sergeant into the community? So he was a casualty. He's not a casualty in the traditional sense because when we figured this out five months before we came home, he went to Fort Leavenworth. He was stripped of all his military medals and he went to prison. We had other casualties too. One of the other guys on my team ended up in a psychiatric ward. Um, one left the army and tried to find solace through religion and became, he's in seminary. Uh, I myself had my own struggles 
which I dealt with through writing. Ultimately, I, I think that this is something that can spur a conversation that we absolutely have to have. But to be realistic, publishing takes a long time. And right now, um, I need the support in order to get that done. In addition to writing this book, I think we need to reach a broader audience. This needs to go national. And the way I want to do that is by going to universities in conjunction and in coordination with the Atlantic Council's Take Point University, which is very similar to the program that we went through, but addressing veterans that are in the bachelor program. And this program would allow me to go to those universities and work with these bachelor students that are veterans while the book is being published to talk about the themes that I'm addressing in the book. The civil military divide, veteran reintegration, Islam, and other, other major themes that come out, like veteran suicide. So I'm going to stop there. I could tell you stories all day long, especially now that I've become comfortable with doing it. But <laughs> I think I'd like to end with a, with a short reading. To set the scene, this takes place in the Iraqi compound. There are four characters. There's an Iraqi mid-level officer, two American lieutenants, and an interpreter named Ali. The Iraqi officer's name is Saad. And the four of them are discussing the attack that I described earlier to you that happened in the Caliph's market, in which eight people were gunned down, many more casualties, shops were burned, sectarian violence is escalating, the mayor and the police, the police chief, were uninvolved. We're in a small room. It's dingy. It was five minutes before the Joint Coordination Center meeting, and Saad could see that the new American lieutenant that Ryder had brought with him seemed eager to speak. What do you think? I don't know what to think, First Lieutenant Martin said. Why did the Iraqi force refuse to respond in the first place? Saad scrunched his forehead and said simply, some Iraqi army, not good men. Maybe some Iraqi soldier support this Mahdi militia attack on Sunni Shah and not want to make, make attacks stop. Well, there are bad people everywhere, Martin then said. I'm curious, though, how did you finally get some soldiers to respond? Saad was not sure he understood the question. He looked at Ali. Ali translated the question into Arabic. Saad nodded his head, then concentrated on his choice of words. I go to each soldier that I know, and I tell them to come with me. Saad paused to prepare his next words. I think maybe bad people, not all bad. When good men say to them they must go help, they go help. Problem come when good men do nothing. Martin elbowed Ryder in his side and smiled. Major Saad, I think you just quoted Edmund Burke. Burke said that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Saad thought about the statement. Humbly, he said, I think this Burke, very wise man. I'm asking you to help me start this conversation. I think we all need to do something good. And this is my way of doing good. Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Tom, for I think showing us within the first 30 seconds of your presentation the power of narrative to address serious issues and to engage the people who have to deal with those serious issues uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So someone in the audience has already uh, mentioned to me, you thought this was going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. So what I'm going to ask you all to do now, I'm going to bring the three uh, fellows up and ask you to come sit on the stage with me while the rest of you adjust your investor hats, get them on uh, appropriately, uh, take a look at your notes. And remember, again, you're going to help us evaluate uh, which one of these pitches we should invest in. All of them come uh, with some compelling issues and compelling approaches, uh, and we'll have a little bit of a chat here and then open it up uh, for you all uh, to ask some questions. Come on, guys. Come on up. Go ahead and grab some feet. Of course. <laughs> well, let me say again, thank you. Great presentations, all three of you. Thank you for doing this. Um, I know, in, to some extent, uh, pitching is a new role for almost anybody uh, trying to do this, particularly on these types of issues. It's kind of a different approach, uh, but we think this is an interesting way to engage folks. And you all, I think, uh, uh, really showed us how uh, this can be a, a useful uh, effort. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to start, I, I get to ask the first question. So I'm going to start by asking the first question, but I'm actually going to ask all three of you the same uh, question uh, in a couple of different ways. And then we'll go to the audience for you all to, to uh, uh, ask your specific questions as well. So all three of you, I think, not only picked really, really compelling topics, but have really uh, interesting and very distinct different uh, approaches for uh, addressing them, and I really appreciate that. The key in the end, though, is impact, right? So how do we create impact? Who do we create that impact with? So the three-part question, it's all about impact, though. Who do you really want to engage? Some of you mentioned this in your presentations, but I, I think it's really worth for the investors, folks with the investor hats to hear. Who do you want to uh, impact? Who's, what's the audience you want to hear you? Not just the folks who will be involved in your project, but who ultimately you want to hear, who ultimately you want to hear the results of your uh, project. How do you want to engage these folks? And what do you hope the impact uh, of your effort will be? Let's start calling. Sure. Um, so the, the who is definitely policymakers and decision makers. Um, this is one of the more important things that I can think of that um, I, you know, we as a nation really need to address, mm -hmm. uh, particularly you know, hearkening back to the um, half a billion dollars that we just spent um, on training and arming Syrian rebels that uh, have since largely disappeared. Uh, we need to be able to give tools and the appropriate tools to policymakers and decision makers to make the best choices uh, for the problems that we're dealing with. Um, more broadly, I think that um, it, it is something that should be more uh, understood realistically, both within academia, uh, practitioners. Everybody needs to have a better understanding of what unconventional warfare is and, and how best to use it. Um, the, the means through which doing that, um, I think, definitely through a research monograph would uh, be able to hit the academia, some of the, the practitioners. Um, and then, conversely, breaking it down into issue briefs and being able to push those out mm -hmm. uh, would definitely be able to give uh, policymakers and decision makers something that's easily digestible right. uh, that they can uh, get in on and then subsequently, hopefully, start to make some better decisions uh, once we have some data and some good tools for that. Got it. Makes sense. Tom? Um, well, I showed in my slide with the concentric circles. My primary, I think my most passionate is the local effect of Yale 
uh, not Yale, but the New Haven community. And it's because you have to, when I leave the, well, left the service, I wanted to become more a citizen, less a Praetorian enforcer of actions overseas. So that has to start locally, and I have to learn how to communicate in that way. So bringing in the Yale professor with the community college student, with the refugee, with the veterans, with um, the person who just saw a flyer and stumbled in, to me is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And then um, at the same time, I see gaps and opportunities to have an important debate. Secretary Kerry's announcement that there's going to be a lot of refugees coming in. The top refugees are right now Iraq, uh, followed closely by Afghanistan, and Syria is going to probably jump to the middle, if not the lead, very shortly. We have to get ahead of this. And, and I see opportunities with like the uh, uh, Leave No One Behind project, which has been incubated a bit uh, through this program in years past. They send a picture when a refugee or an interpreter arrives. That needs to be a full video that's even smaller. And I'm really um, inspired, actually, sounds odd, but by ISIS's ability to passionately use media to take really bad ideas and have them gain traction. Why don't we do it with good ideas, with passionate people that starts grassroots local and can gain network effects? So. Um, well, I think uh, I, the whole point of this project for me is it, it's something that I feel very passionate about. And I think we need to have a conversation nationally. Uh, and the way I want to do that is by creating a story that will be sold nationally, that, that people will pick up across the country and start talking about, starting asking questions, start addressing those things that maybe we don't address um, because we just don't feel comfortable with it. The other thing that I really think is important about this is that while the, the book is going through the publication process is these panel discussions. Because um, going to universities and speaking with veterans about some of the themes that come out in the book will bring it to an audience that normally would never pick up a book. Maybe somebody doesn't normally read books or doesn't uh, want to look at military literature. But having a discussion with veterans where they, they start talking about these issues, especially if we can get some panel, uh, panelists that are, are policy leaders to actually sit on the stage with the veterans and have a conversation with the public about, about these things. That, that I mean, one of the statistics that a lot of people say um, is that there's, there's something like 22 veterans committing suicide a day. There's a lot of controversy around that number. It came out from a Veterans Affairs report in, uh, I think, 2010, there was an update to that report in 2013 that said that actually those numbers may be higher, especially for veterans under the age of 30. And I think that that's, that's a, it's, it's an epidemic. I mean, it's something that we can't just let pass. And so I, I really feel passionately about reaching out to a very broad audience, and I think that done in the right way, with the right story, it can be done. So I feel like I do uh, when I'm looking at uh, the kind of myriad of news feeds I get in the morning and almost invariably somebody comes up to me and says, well, which one is the most important thing I need to concentrate on today? And my answer is usually uh, the hard part is it's all of them. Uh, now we've got three really compelling proposals here with three very different approaches. Uh, and the hard part is we've got to consider all of them, but we do have to pick uh, something. So I would like to enlist your support here. As I said, this is more about uh, how you all are going to interact with these three uh, gentlemen here. Uh, do you have any questions? Do you have any points that you'd like to raise with regard to what you've uh, heard or uh, you know, things that you'd like to hear a little bit uh, more about from one of the presenters? Anybody? Please. Hang on. We've got a microphone for you. Hi. Um, my question is for the Unconventional Warfare Project. What types of data would you collect, um, and how would you manipulate it or look at it? 
Um, so everything is going to have to come through case studies. Uh, that's all that exists right now. So it, it will require a massive amount of reading, essentially, uh, the RS uh, through the Special Warfare um, School has compiled a, a list of case studies uh, over the past, I believe, 60 some odd years. Uh, so I'll start there as far as looking at, at, at US um, and, and what we have. Uh, I, I have kind of a, a rough idea, basically, at this point of, of how the data will be shaped. Um, you know, we, we could get into that if you're really interested in, you know, how, how I look, you know, want to look at the data. Um, but most of it will be coming from those case studies. I'll, I'll then broaden it to really start looking at Russian, uh, Iranian, and, and just kind of broaden out scope from there, if that. Do you want to give us maybe an example of, of uh, a particular data set or a particular type of, particular the quantitative data? Because one of your key points was looking, doing some quantitative analysis. Is there a particular type of quantitative data you'd like to look at? Um, so it, it will be time series. Uh, it, everything is going to basically uh, have to be created at this point mm -hmm. uh, because it, quite frankly, just doesn't exist. Right. Um, so once I get it in a time series format, that's, uh, I mean, it, it's essentially going to be uh, linear regression analysis and things like that uh, in order to actually do the, the tests and see what kind of pops from there. Um, I have some hypotheses already about, you know, what, what really probably will matter versus what probably won't, um, things that will kind of correlate more with successful operations, maybe what doesn't. Um, there, there will be some, some uh, difficulties to overcome, particularly in looking at the economics of it, um, because they are, of course, clandestine operations. So uh, some, some things will be very dependent on uh, what kind of data I can gather, but even just in terms of gathering data that will be able to say, you know, longevity, how long do these operations need to last because what we're looking for is necessary, not sufficient conditions um, to see success. And that's what we don't have right now. Um, so through the data gathering, using the case studies, that's really what we're kind of looking for, uh, you know, at least for this initial push. Uh, depending on what we find, uh, you know, that it, there could be a lot of different avenues to, to go after that. But it, it really is more or less a sense of getting initial data running it and seeing how it actually works. Good, thank you. I think there was right place. Sure. Uh, this also is, is one for you, Mr. Wood. You mentioned that uh, as far as you can tell, uh, there is no unclassified documentation of what you propose to do. Why not? Why hasn't somebody else done this? Um, and it's one that actually, because I've been asking myself the same thing um, over and over again with the many research projects that I've done thus far, um, I, I tend to ask the very simple question, right? Um, because that's often the one that has not been answered yet. Um, in this case, I think because it is something that is uh, relatively not well understood, uh, particularly within academia, um, and then even in the practitioner side, it, it's, it's something that we kind of bandy about. and. Normally, we can say, well, you know, th this case study shows that in this area, it kind of works. So we can kind of follow on that, maybe. Um, the fact that we haven't done quantitative analysis on it yet, again, and if there is something at the classified level, I don't know. Um, but the fact that we haven't done it yet, I think, is, is really speaking volumes to 
really just our, our lack of understanding on what we need to do in order to kind of reshape uh, the way that we're thinking about engaging in the world. So, good, thank you. Is there a question over there? I feel like I have to write in my ballot, just split the pot among the three of you guys. Uh, the work you're doing is extremely compelling and extremely important. I think the worst possible outcome of today would be for the two who didn't get it to be discouraged by not getting the money because I think that you all deserve it. So my question is uh, for each of you to just answer, if you don't win, uh, what are your steps forward anyway and is there anything we can do to promote your success? Well. Uh I already made an appointment with the Yale Veterans Network to talk about fundraising based on things I've learned uh, the past two weeks, um, because that will be necessary, I think, to see my project through regardless if I win or not. So I need to put in action everything I've learned. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of just hunting down those, those routes um, through the local network. Um, and because I've assembled, thankfully, both Maher and Michael are kind of like fanatics now, um, they are willing to work for free and they have a lot of the equipment. So, uh, pending my grade point average, I should be able to see this through. <laughs> Dan? I think that you all are in a very um, enviable position. I, I think it's very rare that I've taken a test and had three right answers to choose from. <laughs> and I think that, um, I, I, I mean, <laughs> you really can't go wrong. I, I absolutely believe in Tom's project and I absolutely believe in Colin's project and I'm extremely passionate about my own project. Um, I have, I have 85,000 words written. Um, I'm in the rewriting process. I don't know how long I can do that full time before I just have to start doing other things um, to survive. And uh, I think that it will get done. It's just a matter of time for me. Uh, the, the, the other question that I have about the difference between doing this um, with funding and doing it without is how I can reach a broader audience, how I can actually, because just writing a book is, is one thing, but um, convincing a large publisher that that book is something that people are interested in is not that easy to do. And if I was able to go to, to a broader audience and, and have panel discussions, and maybe I can figure out a way to do that with the Atlantic Council's help without actually having funding. I don't know. Um, but if I was able to, that would be really important because being able to say, look, there are people that are genuinely interested in seeing this and reading this. Um, it would help it get published, which would help get it out there. So I think the book is going to get done regardless. I can promise you that. It's like, it's like a piece of shrapnel in my back festering that I have to get out. So it's going to happen. <laughs> Colin. I, I agree. Um, <laughs> uh, realistically, you know, for me, this is something that I'm um, uh, looking forward to grad school and everything else. Um, it, it is something that I will continue on. Uh, this would allow me to do it sooner than later. Um, it, this would allow me to essentially to take off time from work and like do it now while it's still really hot and still really important um, versus you know maybe five years down the road as I kind of find time uh, to parse out and do this. Um, it, it is something that I've been very passionate about and trying to you know push everywhere I can. Uh, fortunately, you know the Atlanta Council is here uh, for us in this respect. So. Uh, I, I definitely plan to continue uh, working on this and trying to figure it out as well. It's just uh, kind of, it would be a matter of timing for me, I suppose. Okay. I think we have a question here in the front. Um, yeah. Oh. Okay. Can we do in the front first and then we'll, we'll go back. Uh, okay. <laughs> question is uh, actually for all three, pan uh, all three projects. Um, 
what is the timing you think for your entire project? Uh, how long do you think it's going to take? And how long uh, will this money, how far will this money take you? How long does it take you in the process? And also how you'll use the money. <laughs> Dan, you want to start? Um, yeah, so I, 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 I would like to, I'm, I'm doing rewriting at the, at the moment uh, full time. I would like to have the first draft manuscript done by January. Um, I don't know if that's optimistic, um, but I, I definitely am working on it very hard and very diligently to do that. Um, there's a process of content editing and copy editing that will have to take place. And uh, in, in conjunction with the editing, because that's a matter of me giving somebody something and then having them take the time. And while that's going on, um, the Take Point University panel discussions, that would take place uh, probably in the early spring. So I, I believe that that's tentatively planned for February and March right now. So that, that's when I would actually go out to several cities. Um, and you know, ultimately, I, I think there's a third, there's a third uh, uh, tract of this, of this whole program is there, there'd be a website created, um, which I, I fully intend to also use some of the tools that we've learned about crowdfunding and things like that so that when I went to a panel discussion and said, look, if you really believe in this, get on our mailing list. Um, you know, you can always contribute funding, which would allow us to maybe take those panel discussions further than the initial planned ones that would be done through the Atlantic Council. Um, the other thing is that I think once a publisher did come on board, the idea would be post-publication readings and, um, and panel discussions that, that would be funded through the publishing uh, department. Great. Colin. Uh, yes, realistically, I'm looking at about 12 months. Um, it would be starting essentially you know, tomorrow uh, with beginning to look at the case studies, uh, copious notes, and all those other good things to really start putting the, the data set together. Um, I, I think by uh, about first quarter of uh, 16, I'd be able to actually have the data set put together. Um, I'd run the, the analysis on the data. And then by second, third quarter, I'd be working on uh, really compiling that together and then making recommendations uh, based off that. So by fourth quarter of next year, beginning of that, I would expect to have the, uh, the monograph completed. Um, from that, I would then have to start kind of narrowing things down into different issue briefs, policy briefs, things like that, um, which if I already have the, the bulk of the work already done, I can essentially just kind of excerpt from that. So um, all told, I'm looking at the course of one year in order to actually do this. So, Tom. Yeah, my uh, time frame is beginning to shoot now and leveraging the break uh, aspect of being at grad school, but our key backstop is going to be we want to get it English language out um, before uh, in April so we don't miss that Yale segment. Not just Yale, but a lot of students. Uh, New Haven has a broad student community that leaves in the summer. And then it's not quite as time constrained when I'm thinking about doing the Arab and the Dari because those people are more um, around. And I want to be more gentle in kind of how we um, devise that. So um, the money that we have, if contingent upon winning, um, would be used to get us through those three mini episodes. But additional things like creating, kind of recutting it for the national audience and creating a, a sophisticated um, social media strategy to work with our partner organizations that I've, I've met in DC would be the additional fund would be going towards that. Um, so that's going to be on me no matter what to, to raise and make happen. Very good. In the front. Thank you for your persuasive uh, presentation. So um, I'd like to have a general question. I think it's sort of 
following on from what you said, which is uh, your, your partnerships um, as you develop, as you got to this stage and as you go forward, who are you going to work with? Who are, who are you were involving in this? Yeah, go ahead. To mind the ones I know now, and it's like it kind of changes daily, as I think happens in these uh, initial stages. But uh, the veterans of foreign wars and Yale veterans are people I'm socializing and working through on the veteran side. And uh, then uh, on the refugee side, the Integrated Refugee and Immigrant um, Service, IRIS, in a, um, that works closely with the a Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project at Yale, uh, started by uh, someone who works with the Atlantic Council, uh, Mike Breen. Uh, they're, they're all. Um, going to be, uh, they're all pretty much have signed on to be involved in this process and have a ways of helping me kind of refine my vision. Um, and then other than that, with the telling project, I'm meeting with a kind of a higher up involved person with the Yale Drama School, and they're really busy. Um, but if they don't sign on, for sure, then there's so much quality uh, community theater partners in the community. I'll be searching out for one of those. That's kind of where I'm at. Good, Dan. So um, I, I've actually been extremely fortunate in the last 10 days. Um, just, you know, before I, I wasn't very open or telling people what I was doing um, for a lot of reasons. And, and uh, when I came into the Atlanta Council, I said, okay, you, you've got to go all in. You have to actually tell people what you're working on. And through that, those discussions, I've had some amazing offers of help and support. Um, Fred Kemp, the director of the Atlantic Council, is a very esteemed writer, as many of you know, and he's invited me to his writers group in Washington, D.C., which is pretty cool. Um, I fully intend to follow up on that. <laughs> um, and I, I've also had offers of uh, content editing by, by people that are very well-respected well in the mil military literature um, genre. And um, I, I think that, you know, I, I've also met with August Kuhl, um, an author that, that works with the Atlantic Council who uh, recently came out with a book called Ghost Fleets. Uh, and and he's, he's been, been working with me to, to connect with the, the writing world, um, which I think is really important. And then uh, aside from the writing part, the Atlantic Council's Take Point University is something that I think, based on our experience over the last 10 days with the uh, Take Point program that we were in, this Take Point Fellowship, um, it's something that I actually really would like to be connected with because um, they are going to go out to universities where you're dealing with university students, veterans that maybe haven't um, had the same opportunities that we've had. And uh, I think just off the top of my head, the, the three cities that I know are, are being considered are um, in Omaha, Nebraska, um, through Chuck Hagel's connections, um, as well as uh, Los Angeles and um, Chicago. So I would probably also do something with Words After War, which is based in New York, um, as well as Washington, D.C., because I'm local and the Atlantic Council's here, and they've basically gotten 100% behind this project. So that's uh, really encouraging. Colin. So for me, I'm, I'm really looking more at uh, Joint Special Operations University, the JSO, um, as well as intelligence community, uh, probably state at some point, um, and then of course the the Brent Scowcroft Center here. Uh, <laughs> if, I think that was a, a hint or a nudge yeah. in some way. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I I really need to to reach out a little bit more uh, into the community that that is operating in this space, and that that is one of the other aspects uh, that I really want to touch on, and uh, speak to the the operators that are conducting these missions uh, to find out from them firsthand what's what's been working and what's not, and then compare that. Uh, with a lot of the numbers and things that we see there. So, 
Good. You guys, uh, there's another one. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your words. Um, I think if uh, I was investing in this one, I'd probably want to get a mutual fund instead of individual stocks with you three. <laughs> um, don't think that's possible. So I do have one question, though. Um, I, Colin, I see your approach. Uh, the beauty of that one is it's top down, and that can be very effective to, to touch to the policymaking community. Um, as an active duty uh, currently serving member, I think uh, I appreciate the other two approaches also for more of a grassroots effort um, to do that civil military thing, which is being written and thought about a lot uh, currently. And I think that some of the hard parts for military folks is to, is to grab the audience. And it's, it's always seen that the military folks grab hard when they grab. And there has to be some nuance and, and things that are a little bit more subtle, perhaps, to uh, interact with that, uh, the c civilian aspect of our community. So the question really is for Tom and Daniel with your grassroots approaches is, and I think, uh, Daniel, if I were to read your foreword and I were to read your short biography on the inside covers of your book, uh, it would grab me to, to read the rest of the book. I, in a way, have a concern about the title, being Patriots, that that um, may have a harder impact to grab that civilian audience. Uh, I think that the, uh, yours, Tom, would, would do a better job, perhaps. But maybe what would help me understand is, is how you came up with those titles and what they mean for you uh, so that it would allow for your success. Thanks. Sure. Um, I, I guess uh, Patriots was uh, the name of my team. So we um, and, and actually, so when you're when you're in a deployment or you're on a deployment, you have a call sign, and that's the way you communicate across the radio. And my team was Patriots. So my call sign was Patriot Three. My boss's call sign was Patriot Six, and um, we chose that name because of the football team. <laughs> So um, I think that uh, I, I, I haven't decided if I'm going to keep that um, close or if I'll share that in the book uh, because I think that does share, it, it, it shows sort of a, that connection back to home. When we were deployed, um, one of the things that was like one of the highlights of our time when we were out in Calais was when we got a satellite receiver um, and it was during football season. And actually, it was a military contractor who got us that, that receiver because he, I think he felt bad for us, honestly. We, he, he, he found out where we were living, and he's like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> and, and one of our guys on our team, Dave, was a huge college football fan. And so this man um, went out and got us this receiver. We set it up, and, and we were able to watch football. And it was that, that link back home. And so for those couple hours each week where we were able to actually get a game on the television. I don't care about football. I've never watched football. Um, but I watched football, and I loved it because it was my connection back to the United States. And I think that's what people need to know. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I think that name has a lot of meaning to me. Um, and uh, I, can, I can understand your, your qualms. But I also think that um, it would come out through the writing, through the book. And then the other thing is um, I, I, I don't, I, I left the military in 2010. I went back to graduate school and I did a double degree program in Switzerland and uh, in the Fletcher School at Boston. And then I went on a Fulbright to Nepal. Um, I guess it was kind of like a, 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 a soul searching journey. 
Um, and I, I, I've ended up sort of in a civ mill space because when I was in Nepal, I realized that there wasn't anybody working with the Nepali military either. And, and I thought, well, I've been in the military and there's this connection globally that we all have that, that um, as a military veteran I have, but I've been able to navigate that civilian space as well because humanitarian workers are actually very adverse to military personnel um, for their own reasons. And I was actually able to bridge that gap. So I think um, I've, I've walked on both sides of the street at this point. And that's why I think that um, I'm positioned well to actually write this book. To answer your question, I uh, conceived the title uh, while working uh, late after uh, I worked uh, during the summer with uh, youth entrepreneurs in Kenya. So to me, I conceived the project, but I was like, oh, now I need to come up with a title so I can send it to Jonathan and Dan at the Atlantic <laughs> Council. Um, so to me, it kind of encapsulated something important. But I'll be very honest, I'm not wedded to it. And if you want to write any feedback on the back of your ballots, I do believe in the power, I truly believe in the power of like, I don't know, focus groups to help refine it. Because I've noticed it can be clunky to, uh, to kind of introduce. But the meaning itself to me is like, any, even though it's the Tigris River only in Iraq, it's the center of the greater Middle East that all of our interests or all of our wars have been focused on. And then Grove Street is this true crossroads in New Haven where everybody, um, goes through, not just Yale people, although there are Yale students. And situated there is a uh, building built in 1901 um, and first erected with um, monuments to the Spanish insurrection from the veterans of Yale who were a little upset how little coverage it got in the community. And then really got revamped for World War I vets. And as you saw in the video, it covers all wars except our present. So I was really kind of mixing geographical metaphors in there. But please give me feedback if it works or not. Another question in the back, please. Um, ask you a question about the nature of warfare. I mean, rhetorically, I like to ask, you know, when is warfare ever truly conventional? And another question is, you know, given that the United States now is primarily engaged in you know, counterinsurgency you know, against radical Islam, other than through perhaps less conventional means, how do you propose that the United States tackles the threat of radical Islam? Thank you. <laughs> Those are two uh, very different questions. Um, War is always a very messy process and very difficult. So someone sure. would say things like you know, conventional. I mean, what we think of conventional, you know, like land-based warfare was not so conventional to the predecessors and everything. So it's always evolving as a process. Mm. So as, as, a, as a rhetorical notion of conventionality, I just like just like to throw that out there. But specifically about tackling radical Islam, mm. uh, how do you do that other than through perhaps drones or other proxies and interrogations mm. and everything? Thank you. Yeah, so um, with, with the rhetorical aspect of, of conflict, um, it, it is always evolving. Um, as technology changes, so too does the way that we, that we engage in conflict, right? Um, fortunately, we, we weren't running around with, with swords and bows and arrows because um, that would have been, uh, you know, bad. Um, so the, the, the difference between the, the kind of conventionality and then the, the unconventional, uh, I, I believe really is just in the more kind of in looking at, you know, is it still state on state? Do we know who it is that we're fighting? Like, can I look at you and say, oh yeah, you've got that one patch on your arm. So I know that like, you know, we're not friends. Um, the, you know, it, it's a very nuanced and it's a very uh, difficult thing to actually be engaged in. 
Um, so where there is a line between me being able to say, well, this is conventional versus uh, you know, asymmetric and, and hybrid warfare and all these other things, um, I, I don't know that I could give you um, a, a real answer to that. Um, because it, it, it is still very much, uh, you know, I mean, in, unless we're looking at it in strict definitional terms, which I don't think is what you're asking. Yeah. So it, it is something that is just kind of an ever evolving thing. Like, and that's what warfare is. That's what it's been since we started doing it. Um, with regard to, to your second question, counterinsurgency, uh, coin doctrine, things like that uh, work to a degree. Um, we can't drone, we can't bomb, and we can't expect that uh, kind of the more conventional ways of conducting warfare will always work. Uh, what we are dealing with at this point, particularly with radical Islam, um, you know, as in terrorist organizations, insurgents, it, it's a people problem. Um, if we don't have good strategy and a long-term strategy on how to really look at the problem and look at the people, Look at how do we deploy intelligence? How do we get people on the ground that are paying attention to these things? Uh, we're, we're great technologically, right? We get big data, we'll look at social media, we're gonna grab phone calls and emails and all this other stuff. When your enemy stops using those things, what information do you have on them? Very little, unless you actually have a return to things that do traditionally work, which is having people on the ground. Um, Personally, I, I think that that is likely to be the best way to combat it. Um, not necessarily doing so by you know another surge, um, but it is something that we need to look at really heavily and, and determine what, as a nation, are we willing to accept um, in terms of you know what we're putting back into it. Subsequently, it, it goes back to strategy. You know, what, what is the long-term goal of this? Do we just kind of throw something out and say, okay, yeah, we need to have people all over the globe all of the time, or, you know, is this something that we can do more measured approaches to? Um, you know, I'll make the plug again for the unconventional warfare. Is that something we can use to combat this? Can you use those types of operations as a form of countering violent extremism? Because now you're working by, with, and through the population in order to actually affect change. And I think that's the best way to do it, is still by working with people rather than just trying to confront and say, okay, no, this and that. But. So you all have done a really good job. We'll get to your question too. Uh, putting on your investor hats, you've asked about uh, timelines, approaches, output, and uh, they've all talked to us about the impact that they hope uh, to have. Uh, we'll get one more question, but I'm gonna encourage you all uh, we're relying on you to do our due diligence as we pick uh, who to invest in. So if you have any other questions, let's pull them together now. And then in a few minutes, we're going to distribute some ballots for you all to vote. Uh, I'm going to look at Jonathan and say, I'm pretty sure the answer can't be all three, right? <laughs> so even though that was a great idea, I don't think that that uh, will save you from making a tough choice here. And even though you've heard all three of these guys uh, tell you how passionate they are about their work and how they will continue to do their work, uh, we hope you will help us uh, select uh, uh, one person to help give a boost start uh, to as we go forward. Go ahead. Uh, first of all, uh, just thanks for being up there today. It's been a great pleasure getting to know all of you over the past couple of weeks and uh, learning how to make a fire, uh, something I didn't know how to do before Dan uh, demonstrated for us. Uh, my question is for you, Dan. So um, 
I mean, you've remarkably grown over the past couple of weeks. You came in the first day and you said, hey, I'm writing a book. And now you're up here and you're reading your words. And I think that that's just such an impressive uh, and really inspiring transformation. And I'm curious, do you have any plans to pay it forward? The Atlantic Council has done great things for you. What do you plan to do for uh, those of us who have words on our laptops that are sitting there uh, waiting to be published in different forms, whether online or in books of our own? Yeah, that's actually something that I feel really strongly about because it has been a hard process for me. And I think that it's not necessarily writing. That's not the only answer. There's other forms of, of sort of addressing these issues and bringing it to the public and, and, and bridging that civil-military divide. I think of music off the top of my head um, and art and, and those kind of things. And I think what, what I envision in my mind, and this is maybe it's a pipe dream, but I, I would love to see it happen, but if this is successful... To, to when I'm having those panel discussions, when I'm in the post-publication panel discussions, I can go to other veterans and say and encourage them, like, look, this works, and you can do this. You can, you can do your art, do your music, write poetry, write a book, write um, anything, and, and, and you can actually reach people, and people want to hear your stories. And I think that, um, you know, it was really nice over the last days to, because, like, it, it is intimidating. I mean, I think a lot of people actually consider across some point in their life of writing a book. But it's an incredibly intimidating, incredibly arduous process. And it takes a lot of dedication. And to see someone to actually have done it and actually get it out there, I think that's inspiring. And you guys, everyone that came up to me and said, you know, it's really cool that you're, you're actually doing this. Um, it, it makes me want to do it too. I, I, I highly encourage you to do it. It's, one of been, it. it's been one of the most profound experiences that I've had. I mean, it's not easy um, saying to my girlfriend's parents, well, I'm not working because I'm working on something that may never see the light of day. Um, but but uh, it also has allowed me to actually talk about it and to actually start sharing these things. And maybe it won't be published. You know, maybe this will all fade away. But the fact is, there are 40 people in this room that have heard the story now. And I guarantee that you will go out and you will at least have a conversation, one conversation, about the projects that you heard today. And that was, a, that was a result of this process. And it goes back to the last thing I said. We have got to do good. We are obligated to do good. That's why we all, that's why many of us that were veterans, we went to serve. We didn't go to serve because we wanted uh, money or something like that. <laughs> we joined the military because we wanted to serve. We wanted to do good. And that's what this is for me. That's, it's, it's, it's a way of doing something good. And I think that I really encourage you to take that time. Instead of watching TV at night, write. Do art. Do music. Do something with it. All right. Last call for questions. One more in the back. Oh, two more. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, please. Fascinating, um, all three projects. And thank you very much for, for sharing them. Uh, I think there's one distinction I, I want to highlight. Uh, Tom, uh, I remember being in the Academy's career course, and I remember Restrepo came out. And I remember, and I remember the impact that that had. Restrepo, I don't know if anyone's familiar with it, documentary about, uh, about forces, U.S. forces in Afghanistan. The impact that had not only on the individuals in our community, but also my friends and family at home who knew that I was a veteran, but didn't really know how to ask or how to talk about it, or really what went on. Um, so. 
when you allude to, you know, hopefully the, the projects you have the biggest impact, Tom, I think your, your project uh, is a wonderful idea and I think it will have the biggest impact because it touches on a very human dimension that's critically important uh, outside of the Beltway, outside of policy, but bringing people together and the idea of bringing the veterans, the refugees, and the cadets together, I think is a wonderful idea. So good luck to all of you. Great, thanks. And one last question, I think, in the back. Uh, sure. First, um, thanks uh, all of you for kind of sharing your stories and your vision. I know I really enjoyed it. I've seen kind of versions of what you're trying to do uh, work already out in the space. So I think you guys are heading down a great path. Uh, my question for you is kind of for each of you, if you could describe kind of your ideal state a year from now, where you'd be if you received funding, and to kind of bring home a little bit, how does that um, help or inspire more veterans to get involved in the foreign affairs space? Start with you, Colin. Um, so it, a year from now, what I would really love to see with my project, if it gets funded, um, is to be in some hands of uh, somebody that is actually going to be able to read it and make some good decisions on how we respond to these threats. Um, we don't want to see another, you know, arming and training Syrian rebels thing that we just saw happen, right? Um, Mac Thornberry has actually, uh, I, I believe this year, has made FY16 like one of the years for uh, unconventional warfare, and he's really wanting to, to touch on that. So if, if I can get into that space and be able to you know, allow for more conversation to go on, uh, but not just conversation around you know, kind of the, the, the rhetoric of, of using it and its efficacy and you know, whether it's right or wrong and those things, but be able to actually give numbers um, that say, you know, we can do this right if we do X, Y, Z be able to lay that out, give them the tools to actually make these uh, you know, better decisions. Um, so within a year, that's what I personally would like to see with the project. Um, your second question as far as uh, how do I hope to affect other veterans uh, and then get them into the discourse, I, I think it goes without saying. I mean, each of us up here, you know, as veterans, I want more people that I have served with and other people that I have never met that have served in this space. Um, if there's one thing that I can do with the Atlantic Council with continuing on with this program in particular, you know, if, if I can go out and you know, take part and take point you at some place and say, hey, this is the project that I've been doing, this is what I've been working on, and I can affect you know, even two individuals that say, you know what, yeah, I've always had this idea for you know, this aspect of foreign policy that I want to change, I think that's great. Um, and that ultimately, I, I think, is what we should all be striving to do uh, within this space. So, Dan. So I think uh, a year from now, I would love to see the book published and out in a general audience across the United States and allowing that conversation to be spurred, to, to have those conversations that we need to have about veteran reintegration. And the reason I bring that up is because this book, um, it, it also addresses the, the Iraqis that I worked with. And I think what's really interesting, and, and it came out in the comments prior to our presentations, is that there is a recognition among the policy leaders of our experience on the ground that we understand the, the communities that we are a part of. And I think when the broader community understand that and understands that, when the civil-military divide is maybe closed a little bit, you won't have these veterans who are fighting to get jobs in the foreign policy space because people will say, hey, we need to get this guy in here. Um, we need to get this woman who did you know, human intelligence on our team in the State Department, in USAID. And I think that will bring more people into the community, into the foreign policy space. The other thing is that I think that um, 
you know, having these conversations with students uh, in the university, it, it encourages them to not necessarily take the business track, to take the private sector. I do think that there's a need for public-private partnerships. And you can do service through the private sector, but like keeping that in mind when you go to business school or when you go to your, whatever school it is that you go to, to keep in mind this foreign policy space because they do have this on the ground, very, very relevant experience at a tactical and operational level. And I think that's, um, I think that it, it'll happen through the dialogue that we, we need to have as a, as a nation. Yeah, I'll uh, keep it brief. I don't know what necessary impact my videos themselves will have, but they will be made. And I will conduct a thought through strategy on how to distribute them both in the community and abroad, or not abroad, uh, in the national space. But my most important impact is a year from now, the two people who are walking this journey with me, and maybe um, others, they do have families that I'm uh, involved with, will ha I will have walked my journey and they would have walked with me. And I really want Maher to be more successful in his endeavors and to be able to communicate from the Iraqi kid whose friends like a year ago got rolled up for cutting videos for ISIS. You know, those were the teenagers he grew up with in Baghdad. I want him to be able to contribute in the American space. And Michael, so few, he's an active duty person who basically works for the National Guard. So few people are involved in art projects in that space. I want him to be able to continue uh, forward. So thanks for that great question. I think that was about the best way we could have closed out uh, this panel discussion uh, possible. Let me just say to you guys, uh, honestly and, and, and personally, this has been my favorite panel uh, to moderate uh, since I've joined the, the council uh, last year. Uh, I really appreciate your, your passion, your dedication, uh, everything you bring to the work uh, that you all are doing. I think all of you should appreciate as well what we really have here is really quite a good representation of the range of different ways uh, that we all can try and engage uh, on foreign policy issues. So I hope regardless of the specific outcome of this particular event, uh, everybody is able to take away uh, a little bit of something that may inspire them to go and pursue uh, some of these types of, of efforts as well. And what I will say is ultimately, again, going back to Jonathan, can't pick all of them, but from a community standpoint, as somebody who has played a role in foreign policy decision making, all of these are important. Uh, and so I'm so glad that we've had uh, all three of you here. Thank you all for wearing your investor hats uh, very diligently and asking all the right questions. Um, I look to you, Jonathan. How are we going to distribute the? So everybody should have ballots on chairs. Everybody should have ballots. Okay. Can I ask you first, though, to please thank all three of our presenters? Please, please find your ballots. If you don't have one, put your hand up. We will make sure you get one. Uh, and it looks like we will be collecting them as well. I think we're also going to take about a five-minute break. Is that right? All right. Welcome back, uh, everybody. Thank you for voting. And the results are in. I have not looked at them yet either, so I'm going to be surprised too. Uh, before I get to the results, uh, I just want to say not only thank you all for participating in this, and uh, as you know, uh, the whole point of this was to have your active participation. Uh, but I also, again, want to thank uh, both Jonathan and Dan for not only inviting me here, uh, but for setting up from what I've already heard from a lot of the participants was just an amazing two weeks uh, worth of work. So if you all join me, I just want to say thanks, guys. I think this was amazing. I know there are a lot of people who helped Jonathan and Dan make this all work throughout the couple of weeks uh, with events, off-sites, and, and so forth. I'll forget somebody if I try and mention them, uh, but I know you all have all met them uh, over the past couple of weeks. So uh, thank you all, too, for, for helping out. 
uh, on this. All right, as they say, the envelope, please. They've already given it to me. Uh, I will read out the two runner-ups first, and then the recipient of the Take Point Initiative, uh, what are we calling it? In Thought Leadership Grant, is that, that the right term? Uh, of $17,500. Um, so, the two runners-up are Mr. Colin Wood. Please come on up. You want to do this here? Why don't you come on up here? And we'll take, you know how you do the DOD type Oh, yeah. So we'll <laughs> you have to shake One hands, more. hold it up, and then thank you very thank much. You. Thanks. Uh, again, let me just say I really appreciated uh, not only the subject that you're looking into. Yeah, you can come back okay. down this way. I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't figured out the cage stage choreographing, but uh, thank you very much for your presentation. I think that was excellent, and I think, as you could tell, everybody thought uh, all of these were really excellent presentations. The next runner-up is, I'm going to make sure I get this right and don't do like an Oscar event sort of thing, uh, Mr. Colin Wood. Was, I'm sorry, <laughs> Mr. Mr. <laughs> you, you are runner-up twice. I'm sorry, I did do an Oscar, Oscar moment, Mr. Tom Barry. Please come on up. Do the photo op. <laughs> Thank you very much. Obviously, an extremely compelling uh, presentation. I think everybody was really wowed by the work you're trying to do. We really look forward to, to seeing the output uh, as it goes forward. So thank you. And then obviously, and hopefully I don't get this one wrong, because it's kind of <laughs> two out of three done. The winner of the Take Point uh, Initiative Fellowship Grant uh, is Mr. Daniel uh, Trusillo uh, for his work, uh, work of fiction. Uh, and really, clearly, very powerful ability to use narrative to tell a story. Uh, we are really looking forward to helping you uh, with that work, to really bringing your story not only to people in general, uh, but to the folks who experienced it with you, and then to the people who need to understand uh, what you uh, and your uh, fellow veterans have experienced uh, as well. So it's my great pleasure uh, to provide you uh, with the uh, winning globe uh, in recognition. <laughs> Do you want to say a couple of yeah, words? Yeah, please. Um, thank you all very much. The, this, is, this is inspiring, and it, and it gives me a lot of encouragement to keep pushing forward with obviously something that I'm very passionate about. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> um, I'll probably have to write something down and then email it out. Um, <laughs> I, I want to and um, just by saying some very specific thanks. First of all, thank you to the Atlantic Council, um, to Jonathan, Dan, and Molly. Um, you guys have been amazing. This has been an amazing experience, and I think all of my veteran brothers and sisters would agree to that. Um, I wanna thank my veteran brothers and sisters that were part of this program with me because you guys were, I mean, Jeremy, the, that, that transformation wasn't in me. That was because of you, so thank you. And then lastly, um, my, my telling project partners, <laughs> uh, Tom and Colin, I mean, you guys are, you know, like best friends now. So 
Thanks. And um, I, I think you, you couldn't have made a bad choice. Um, I'm going to take this obligation and run with it. And uh, I can't wait to, to get it out there. So thanks to everybody. Thank you all very, very much. Uh, again, this has been my favorite event. Uh, thanks in part to these three great uh, presenters, but thanks also to you for making this uh, a really excellent, although we gave you a tough problem uh, to, to work with, but I think we've got a great choice here, and I think you've heard from all three participants. We're going to keep working with everybody uh, and making these things happen. So thank you again. Please join us again as we continue to do these types of events, uh, both at the Atlantic Council in general, but obviously uh, the specific efforts that Dan and uh, Jonathan will be uh, uh, putting forward. Jonathan, do you have anything you want to add before we wrap up here? Thanks for coming, everybody.